You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to the show. Stu Goldsmith here. This is the Comedian's Comedian podcast and today we are talking to someone who is, by his own description, very fulfilled as an unfulfilled comedian, the hilarious Alistair Barry. We are going to talk about his forthcoming tour, Woke in Progress, which did very, very well at the Edinburgh Festival. And let me remind you, while I remember, that you can find out dates and ticket links and so on at alistairbarry.com. He's an Alistair, not an Alastair, or even an Alastair. He's an Alistair. But if you're going to go and look at something uh, about him, and presumably you've got the internet and Google is your friend. Uh, you can also find his food blog at foodpons.com, but we didn't talk much about that. Instead, we talked about not only his tour, but also his anger, his uh, his relationship with humility, let's say. Uh, we'll talk about his public school upbringing and the abandonment issues that went on to forge his resilience. Um, we are I don't want we don't get too deeply into the abandonment stuff. Equally, I don't want to to treat it too lightly. But this is not the first stand up comedian who has been on this podcast who was sent away to boarding school and whose life it profoundly affected. Can we all stop doing that, please? Unless we want really good comedians, in which case carry on 30 minutes of extra is available exclusively to you if you're a member of the insiders club including alistair on his sage advice for thriving at corporate gigs you're not going to believe this he does a lot of corporate work and uh, we're going to talk about some of his advice for surviving and thriving and also um, deaths and how to cope with them and we'll find out what happened when he played both the labor and conservative party conferences all of that and more a proper post amble at the end because i've got a specific thing to talk about because which i've thought about in advance very unlike me this is Alistair Barry. Hello, Al. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you? I'm very well, mate. Absolute pleasure and privilege to be on uh, one of the longest standing, most established podcasts in the history of comedy. Thank you very much. Gosh, I mean, yeah, in, uh, yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, that's, yes, I feel quite good about that. I shall dust myself off. Um, well, because I, I, I actually, in preparation, I listened to um, Ian Moore's one from a few years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was quite amused by because you were like, well, we got you on eventually. And I was sort of listening to it in the car on the way back from the gig going, eventually, this was 2000, I think it was, it was a couple of years ago. And then um, you made a comment about how Ian was one of the kind of stalwart 
uh, you know, bulletproof comedy store closes when you started. And Ian started yeah. a couple of years before me. So I was like, well, fair enough. Because he said that thing about this, all, lot, the, all of those guys were middle-aged white men. So I was like, well, it's no wonder it's taken me a couple more years. Because uh, <laughs> couple I of wasn't. years <laughs> I wondered if I detected, and you wouldn't be alone in this, I wondered if when you said uh, long-standing podcasts, there was a note of, finally. Well, no, no. <laughs> which, I, is, there is. which is completely reasonable. But also, of course... There's a lot of comedians in the world. There's an enormous amount to get through. It's a joy, a joy and a privilege to be here, and I'm very <laughs> glad we, we got round to me eventually, despite the fact that alphabetically I feel I should have been slightly further up the list. Ah, I remember Alan Cochran <laughs> saying to me many years ago that he and Adam Bloom had decided yeah, that know. it must be the case that it was to their advantage they yep. had an A name because they were in, in the days of paper diaries and oh, notebooks. And- <laughs> un- undoubtedly. You know, myself and both of those guys have had this, exactly the same conversation because I'm AB. So, uh, yeah. Yes. When, when you're thumbing uh, through desperately trying to find someone, is it, it reminds me of when I started out, there was a comic who... Um, who shall remain nameless, mainly because I can only remember his first name. But he was like, sometimes I just think they don't think I'm that good at all, but they do think, well, he's got a courser. And I spoke to my <laughs> agent at the time and mentioned it, and she went, yes, he does have a courser. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, I'm going to... I don't. My car knowledge isn't enough to retcon... The well, comedy in that comment. What's it it, the, it what's could have it could have been well. A Vauxhall Corsa is not a particularly exciting car in any way, shape, or form. But it is a very uh, it's very much a journeyman car that will get comics and their you know the driver and the other bit the rest of the bill. Oh, I see. To I a gig. see. I see. So yes. he was very much uh, assessing that he was he was being booked perhaps more on his um, his transport capabilities than his comedic capabilities. And my hey, agent listen. did agree. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever booked a gig. Those things play in. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) That's weird. I think that's one of those. That's one of those things. And we will we'll talk about this in in different ways, I'm sure. But that's one of those things whereby I'm interested in how the comedy circuit has shifted over the duration of your career. Because you as you you know, you you were a, a few years after Ian. Uh, you're a couple of years at school ahead of me in terms of comedy. You know, you'd have been doing this store and headlining and what have you when I was a squit. And um, uh, it, obviously things are so different now. A lot of things are the same or it's the same sort of uh, emotion or the same thought, but kind of wearing different clothes. We were both, I imagine, of an era where we were driving, having printed out the Google directions pre-SatNav. SatNav came in over the... Oh, I, 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 I would say that that shows my age even more. I mean, I wasn't anywhere near Google Maps. That may also point to Oh, my... you did it in Ogham's. Oh, you did it in I, mean, I, I, I missed computers at school by about a year. I remember when I was at primary school, they had an IBM pet in the corner and everyone did that basic program, which was run, go to 10 and made everything. And that was that was literally as far as my coding career went. Um, and so I never I, I'm so late to computers and this modern world of TikTok and everything is 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 frightening to me. But I have to embrace it. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I huge, huge Atlas in the back of the car. Uh, the London A to Z was something you didn't leave the house without. And uh, you, you certainly never left a town without going around one roundabout at least three times. And did you do you miss that era? Is there anything or, or do you miss elements of that era? Kind of like a simpler time in comedy? Um, I don't know about missing that's kind of you know there was it wasn't a particularly fun thing to be sort of driving around with your ginsters pasty to one side desperately going I'm 
fucking late for somewhere in Exeter and trying to read the map on your lap at the same time. And possibly at that time, even uh, you didn't have the wherewithal to use a mobile head hands free set. So, you, you know, I mean, you were basically lethal on the roads. Um, I think you mentioned how things have changed. I think one thing and I don't know if this changes just because of seniority through the the bill etc um but the thing i do miss that we used to do a lot was all jumping in a car together and going off to god knows where and they were great journeys and you know you were all talking comedy and all kinds of things um i do miss that slightly community feel of of everyone jumping in a car together which happens very rarely so every now and then you do a road trip and it can be i did a little one the other day just out it was only about an hour and a bit with uh, howard reed um because he lives quite near me and howard's an absolute sweetheart and we go back 25 years and we just had the best drive there and back and you know that i miss that definitely that's that was nice do you do you think those elements of um because i i i miss that and i could have it more than i do i think there's a point at which i certainly remember deciding hey i'm the headliner now i don't have to lift chair <laughs> do you know what i mean in my in my hubris um and uh, you know, careers can go up as well as down. Um, but I, uh, it's, the, I, I definitely... it's the old joke. Sorry to interrupt, but it's that old go joke on. about you uh, you playing that place twice, once on the way up and once on the way down. It's just the idea yeah. of you on the M4 with a car full going. Well, it's nice to be back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think I think that I opted out of that as soon as I could because it was tiresome and it's a pain in the ass to, you know, administratively tiresome. And I wonder, just thinking about it now, whether I have missed out. I certainly feel like the camaraderie in the community was a big part of what attracted me to comedy, or certainly being on the outside of the camaraderie in the community, in the same way as you're on the outside of the door marked backstage, yeah. you know, and you're sort of attracted to that and you want to kind of be inside that bubble. And then I love being inside that bubble. And I, I sort of, I, I question really sometimes why I have retreated from it in the way that I have. But I think, Is that something you've done or gone No, through? I don't know if I've done it quite as consciously as going, I am now the headliner and I will arrive at my <laughs> own good time. I, uh, I, I wasn't trying to trap you. I'm no, talking no, about a specific no, no. year when you're like, I'm no longer Johnny Open Mic driving everyone. So no, I, I don't. Space, I, you know? I, I was very lucky because I wasn't Johnny Open Mic um, for very long, but I did do a lot of driving. There were uh, three acts in particular I drove a lot. I'll get to them in a sec. But um, the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the the thing that I, I noticed more than anything else is it's not wasn't about sort of going, as you said earlier there are a lot of comedians and there I think really if we look at it there were a lot less twenty five years ago a lot less going and doing the off the curb gigs here and the glees there and whatever and um, you know I mean I remember driving to I remember driving Russell Peters to a gig um, <laughs> and this must have been probably uh, 2001 2002 because I always remember I was driving him somewhere not too far away he wasn't an enormous global star at this point obviously and uh, we were talking about the glee I just got in with the glee but at that point the glee still made you pay for your hotel and uh, I said oh yeah I've got the glee. he said oh yeah I've got that coming up uh, and uh, and I said yeah the, the hotel's all right but it's you know it's a bit of annoying paying for it and he went you have to pay for your hotel and I was like, yeah, yeah, jewellery, so they make you pay for your hotel. And he phoned his agent and went, cancel that weekend. I'm not paying for a hotel. And I was just driving along going, bloody hell, Mr. Big Potatoes. But, <laughs> um, but no, I think I think there were, I think the bottom line, it's not you going, I am the headliner now. It's actually, there are a lot of comedians. And for all the way we look back with rose-tinted spectacles at those wonderful car journeys, actually an hour and a half there and back with Howard Reed is gorgeous. But 
in real terms, you if you're still doing lots of car shares, you are putting yourself up to a very random selection of people who may not be quite as joyful as Mr. Reed. And there will be a number of journeys where you're going, oh, God, I've got this bloke in the back or whatever. And you you just get, you know, I'm I'm 51 now. I don't particularly want to be driving random people around. And I will if it's necessary. But uh, I don't think I miss that. So where are you with comedy at the moment? How's it treating you? Because well, we've got, like, we, we get on and we've had some fun nights together here and there over the years. I remember a very amusing night at the, um, the Comedy Caf. Oh, uh, R.I.P. Yes. Long, long time ago. Um, and I could I could definitely do lots of reminiscing. And I've, I've deliberately kind of started with that because it's just it's nice to see you and it's nice to go. And oh, you yeah. too. Gigs, man. I sort of think of you. This might please you. I visualise you on stage at the store. I think of you as like a store act to whom the store is important. And do you know what I mean? That's like you were probably playing it when I started and I'd have gone, oh, Al Barry, he's one of those guys. So forgive me. I'll end up if I don't watch myself, I'll end up whiffling into nostalgia. But no, let's talk about. Let's talk about where you're at now. How's where comedy treating I'm you just now? now? So that's, well, I mean, it's a, obviously, as you know, it's a huge question. Uh, right now, I'm on tour, um, which I basically kind of grasped the nettle uh, and went... Because uh, no one is really going to tour a middle-class, uh, middle-aged white man without any particular fame or a particular angle. Um, but, I mean, no, no one's going to tour anyone without any particular fame. Well, no, well, this is actually I don't, I don't entirely. Well, partly. I mean, I had, I had Nigel Clarfell and um, Phil McIntyre's lot all came to the Edinburgh show this year. Uh, or no, Nigel came last year, and they were both like absolutely fantastic. Love it. We want to tour him. We are going to watch his profile and. Oh, right, you're going to watch my profile. And it's very difficult to, as we all know, the profile is, is the big thing. Um, and I fully understand I'm not, I'm not uh, a, a ticket-selling machine, as many of our compadres are. Um, but I've sort of knuckled down over the last few years, in Edinburgh especially, um, and I was looking at this the other day going, I haven't had less than a four-star review since 2015, I think. Um, and this year's reviews, frankly, without wishing to be overly arrogant on a podcast i i couldn't have written better ones myself they were you know across the board just glorious reviews the audience reviews were exactly the same not a single negative one and i was just like you know this show it's quite topical because i'm quite topical comic uh it's not there's joke if you're doing jokes about 2022 in 2023 that's fine but if you're doing them in 2024 it starts to feel a bit like you know it's like watching people who are doing their lockdown routines at the moment you go come on guys um and so I wanted to tour it and I basically I did a very small tour of the show about my wife's breast cancer in 2016 um but that I mean I did it in Australia and I did it in Greece and Norway but it wasn't really a tour I kind of threw it together this year um partly because I think (laughs) well I'm sure we will talk about this later on partly because I'm on some quite interesting medication for ADHD I am more organized than I have ever been and uh, I put this tour together it's 22 dates going all over the place um, and it seems to be going all right so that's a very positive thing about the the show and being able to just go you know what this is good I'm going to put it out there and we did the first one last week and we we sold okay and I think the bottom line is, if you've got more than 50 people in a room, you're having a good show. Um, so on that front, very happy. So with regard to this, if we regard this as your first tour, like you said, the other one you did overseas a bit, but it wasn't like a kind of, you know, X number of dates tour in the UK kind of thing. 
If this is your first tour and you are at a stage like where you haven't been graced with some explosive TikTok, you know, whatever, that, that kind of that thing that motors... You know, there's several types of profile, aren't there? There's yeah. You do radio shows and TV, and then you do the social media profile, and I'm sure there's, a, you know, grassroots touring and touring and touring, all those kind of things. Uh, is it a source of frustration for you that you didn't do this 10 years ago? Because you were... I'm not... I don't mean you were as funny 10 years ago, I'm sure. We've, you've improved as we all do. But you were very, very funny and getting great reviews 10 years ago, but you didn't tour then. Is that a reflection of how your understanding of the circuit has changed or your understanding of what it is to be a comic has changed? I don't know the answer to that, to be blatantly honest. I think, I mean, the show, I, the tour I did in 2015, we did, I think I did about 14 dates in the UK. Oh, OK. And it yeah. was, it was a kind of, but also it was very specialised in terms of, you know, it was about breast cancer. It was a show, mm-hmm. it, was, it was a PowerPoint show in many ways. Um I think there is an element of frustration that I didn't do that earlier, but it's also, I think it's become more and more, I mean, there is one big point, which is going, you know, should I do this? Can I do this? And slightly forgetting that I have been, you know, a professional comedian for 23 years. And actually there's quite a lot of people. I I put things up on Facebook going, if you want me to come to your town, let me know. And loads of people going, oh, are you coming here? Are you coming there? And you kind of go, there is, there are people out there who've seen Alistair Barry and quite enjoyed him and would like to see him again. So I think, Definitely. I mean, there's. I, I, I don't know about you. I think we're quite similar in this. I mean, there's a thing I've always remembered you saying about um, just because you, uh, you you can be pleased for someone and jealous of them as well. As you watch your compadres, <laughs> you know, sail onto show. You know, I mean, the fact that the fact that Live at the Apollo is the one that's always brought up, but it is a club um, structure, and yet people who've been really smashing the clubs for years haven't played it. And you kind of go, well, I could. We, we all know we could do it. So, mm-hmm. of course, you get frustration. But then you watch, you know, I don't know who's been on. Scott Bennett goes on and you go, wicked, Scott's on. That's fantastic. So I've always loved that that, that idea because it's this idea of oh, you're being bitter. You go, I'm not being bitter. I'm I'm annoyed that I'm not getting the opportunity. I can, you can hold two thoughts in your head at the same time. Having said that, it's still fairly clear I'm not going to get put on Live at the Apollo for the reasons we've discussed um, unless something seismic happens. So... I'm very happy to go. I, I've, I've just kind of grasped the nettle and been really pleased by the response. And also, I think I've, I'm a bit, I'm old enough and wise enough and experienced enough to go. I need to go places where punters are trusting the promoter to provide good comedy rather than Instagram numbers because I haven't got as many as I want. I've spent a long time building up an excellent Twitter follower only for Elon Musk to um, set the bin on fire whilst pissing on it. Um, so. I don't regret it as such, but I do think the way the circuit is now, um, this is a mu- this is becoming a much more valid way of going about it. If you if you've got the gear, because that's the big thing. I mean, I heard an interesting thing the other day about um, the Frog and Bucket has stopped taking shows from TikTokers because they've literally been getting people who sell out the room. And I mean, they apparently they had one guy on stage holding his phone, going, "Yeah, this this video. Do you remember this one? I did." And it's like, <laughs> and they've been they've had like two or three shows. They've had to give refunds for it not being a show. And the one thing that we all have, frankly, is chops, and they are actually quite a valuable commodity. And I am quite idealistic about that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think we're of a, an era, a sort of a transitional era. 
I don't know, me, me more so than you. I don't know if there's sort of five five years or so difference between when we started, but we're definitely, you know, whatever it is, like a, a zenial, supposedly, as someone <laughs> yeah. who can fix a cassette with a pencil yeah. that also knows their way around the internet, you know. Um, I, ju- I, ju- I, just, I just can't remember where I put the cassette, that's all. Yeah, that like that's a very specific transitional phase. And I definitely think that we are of a comedy transitional phase whereby in the olden d- days, in days of yore, having chops was sufficient. Being funny was sufficient. Turning over material was sufficient. There's a circuit. You learn what it is. You recognise that it exists. And then you fold yourself into it and you mm. fly around it. It's almost like a company existed whereby it was possible to climb to at yeah. least the top of the middle. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Progression existed in a, in a framework. Under our feet and all around us at the same time, this whole new way of doing it has emerged, which is based, I don't think, just in kind of internet. And you see, you can look at kind of outlying explosive TikTok people, what have you. But it's not simply that people with followers are getting booked now and they can't do the job so much as what the job is has changed because the job the job of the factory of comedy a, a long time ago was to certainly in the UK take in any comedian who can do it chop up the night and let every comedian who can do it do it and sell tickets on the door and pay them a wage safe in the knowledge that the wage will remain the same for the next 40 years yes but <laughs> but what's really going on is Tickets are being sold to people in return for a good time. And now, rather than that factory existing, it's like anyone can say, I'm capable of selling a ticket. And so they can sell a ticket. And to those of us who kind of bashed the circuit for years and didn't and and, and can't click their fingers and sell 500 tickets and fill a decent, a decent sized room. I mean, I feel a certain amount of. I don't I don't think I call it resentment anymore, but the resentment is definitely something I've had to work through because I was like, hang on a minute, you bastards. I thought there was a system. <laughs> I thought that simply by being brave and by knowing and I can't credit this. I'm sure I saw it on a tweet. If anyone knows it, please tweet it at me at ComComPod. Um, it was something along the lines of the, the 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 biggest change in comedy is that it is no longer a secret that if you talk with charisma, people will listen. And it was like years ago, <laughs> we'd learnt that secret and no one else knew no it. And we coveted knew. our secret. Yes. No one else knew we coveted the secret. There's a thing. I can be part of this, this company and rise to the, the top of the middle at least. There was that idea of progression. And now that has exploded. And I think for me, my feelings about that are something I've had to work through. Certainly, we are seeing now people... I think it's, I'm very happy that now there is a kind of a confluence of people who do have chops and have worked really hard to build them up are now in a position where they've got they can click their fingers and you know sell 500 tickets or yeah. or far more but just talk to me about your sort of journey through that and your emotional response to it as someone who's had the chops for a hell of a long time has been getting great 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 five star reviews at edinburgh for a hell of a long time and hasn't necessarily been able to parlay that into the finger-clicking 500-seater. Um, my emotional response to it, I mean, again, I just come back to, and it's probably to my detriment, but I do come back to a slightly idealised view, which is, I mean, it's something that um, uh, Craig Campbell said many years ago, is just keep on going because when you when they come, you'll be better than you would have been basically and they may never come who are they what is that anymore because the the problem i do have is that i give, give you a great example i was talking to jimmy mcgee the other day and he was at this comedy store emceeing 
and he had his flies undone and he didn't realize and the opening was a little bit sticky he wasn't sure why and then someone went your flies are undone he looked at it, and it was one of those sort of wasn't just the flies were undone it's one of those gaping incidents where it was entirely obvious to everyone these flies were undone and he was like you bastards you didn't tell me about it. and because jimmy's great and a wonderful mc dealt with it made it funny did his flies up got the first act on and one of the other acts who was a newer act who i, I can't remember who it wasn't whose name i forget it was a girl set came up to him and went, oh my god that is so viral immediately and jimmy who jimmy bless him isn't even on facebook or twitter or anything he's, jimmy's just like i don't care and i have a lot of sympathy with that point of view because you know the flies are open i mean maybe it is funny video maybe i'm being stuck in the mud but there's a lot of stuff going on at the moment for instance i don't know if you've heard this certain clubs in the states are now banning crowd work because of the amount of uh whoa the I amount of that. the amount of acts going on and just going hey look at that shirt you know that's uh whatever blah 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 and desperately trying to create tiktok moments i had it the other day frog and bucket bloke in the balcony talking and i was just like because they're much closer to you than they think they are at the frog and bucket and i was like are you can i help you and he just went and i i dealt with him and then he said ah, that classic ah well i've helped your act out haven't i at which point 20 years of experience came rushing down on his head and i dealt with him for, uh, there was a little you know you're on stage editor that you've always got my on-stage editor in my head was just going, this is the sort of thing that they love on TikTok, isn't it? You absolutely destroying a heckler. So there we go. And it's like, I don't think that's particularly healthy for comedy. I think it's a great part of comedy, but it's something that is joyful and of the moment. So this is Alistair. I can only apologise for the awful nasal quality of my voice. Once again, I'm poorly. And it's not just, you know... Uh... <laughs> Never mind. I was going to say something glib about COVID, but the reality is I sort of get chest infections every year and always have since I was about 20. But uh, I'm not going to say anything glib about COVID. In fact, I may well edit this bit out. Did I? I don't know. Let's assume I didn't. So uh, more from Alistair shortly. Remember, half an hour of extras, including Alistair's sage advice for corporate gigs uh, and uh, a, a romp through some of his worst deaths, which uh, was uh, fun to listen to and uh, and kind of nerve-wracking to listen to as well. All of that available to you on the Insiders feed for a minimum donation to support the podcast of £2 a month. And if you're one of the people who've been listening for a 100 years and has yet to support, then uh, feel free to keep on doing that. It's, it's you know, it's not a hostage situation. But if you did fancy supporting it, that would be very lovely indeed. So um, more on the Insiders feed, all of that at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And more from Alistair shortly. A reminder, alistairbarry.com for uh, tour dates and tickets for Woke in Progress. And also an alarming amount of social accounts, all under the title Alistair Barry. That's Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube and Blue Sky by Jove. He's got the lot of them just with his own name. I think that's the first time that's ever cropped up in over 400 episodes. Well, um, more from Alistair in a second and uh, more from me with a postamble afterwards. But, uh, well, that's... I mean, what else am I doing? I'm doing shows, I'm doing stuff. There's, you know, irons in the fire and so on, but nothing specifically I'm launching, so let's crack on. Here's Al. I'm 
fascinated to hear there's a club that's banning crowd work. Of course. I mean, that's one of the fun things about comedy, isn't it? Everyone is everyone involved in it is a tiny entrepreneur. Mm. And as a result, everyone goes, oh, we're all doing this. Well, no, they're doing that. Yeah, yeah, Let's all do yeah, that. Yeah, and yeah. a huge amount. If you've ever booked a gig and if you ever mistakenly said on the Facebook Pro Gigs page, I'm booking a gig and bang, suddenly your inbox explodes. And you're like, what, what a lot of people there are out there hovering with drive and determination and hunger and, you know, positive and negative versions of that. And also... I think it's fascinating seeing how it kind of morphs and evolves. And also, without wishing to be rude, I have... I mean, I've just literally, before I got on here, I actually had to advertise for a tour support slot because my tour support can't do it. Um, and it's at Bracknell, which is a gorgeous gig. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to return to that. But I must say, um, I, I tried to replace myself and Mick Ferry at uh, a gig a little while ago. Mick, one of my best friends, we were both meant to be doing a festival because we were doing something which got cancelled. And I cancelled it. And I said, we need two, you know stalwart headliners basically i mean warhorse for want of a better word and some of the responses i got i was just like these i mean i'm I'm all for self-confidence and pushing yourself but that this is not what i asked for you are not mick ferry um and i think yeah as i say self-confidence is not a problem but there is again there's a lot of people out there with drive and determination who and again maybe we're old just off we our drive and determination i think was mostly directed towards trying to do the best comedy we can i had a fascinating conversation last week with a someone about doing my social media who was eye-wateringly expensive because it's a very much in-demand skill these days and some of the things she was telling me were fascinating and some of them were so depressing like if you put something up like a bit of content um first three seconds if you don't get the first three seconds you're fucked and then, and I was going, how long should the clip be in? 30 seconds. I struggle to find, I've got, of course, we've all got one-liners. We've all got, but I I think one of the biggest problems my generation has is we've got these bits that we've sort of polished and honed. And then you go, can you cut that down to 30 seconds? And I don't, th- if you're Gary Delaney, bloody marvellous. But not a lot of us are yeah, Gary Delaney. But it's- isn't it a different thing, though, whereby they're not saying do a perfect Gary Delaney, Stephen Wright style one liner in 30 seconds that is funny within three? What they're asking is adapt, change, be funny in a way that isn't geared towards the live experience of people standing in a com- sitting in a comedy club. Be funny in a way that's geared towards the experience of someone scrolling through Instagram. Quite. I- so th- is, is, is that a mistake to think? I can't be funny in 30 seconds or is it because you can, you're a funny person. It's just that you are optimized for being funny under a certain set of preconditions. And is it too far down the line for you to change the, what's, you know, to, 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 uh, to sort of broaden the way in which you're funny, to add a different tool to your toolkit, because you know, or as we all are beginning to know that if you can do that, then you can do the thing that you honed for ages. You can do the thing for which you've optimized. I'm, Possibly, I don't. I I don't like it. I'm sorry. I just. <laughs> I, I'm being. I'm being. No, 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 I think this, it, isn't, I think this isn't something I've nailed. No, no, and I don't. But think. I think the other thing to look back on is if you think about like when I started at, at getting my, I've got my first video from the store, and you know the first five minutes I did there still remains one of those just one of those gigs you walked on, said the right thing first, and everything went gloriously. And Don Ward came backstage and went, "You're very confident," and it it was just <laughs> it was one of those. You, know, you I had difficulty getting my head out. I mean, I'd done five minutes, but I had difficulty getting my head out of the store doors that day. Um, and but that video, you sort of clutched as your um, 
uh, you know, your sort of passport. The funniest thing about that video, of course, was that there was only one microphone in the room, which was the one you were speaking into. Um, so I remember showing it to my mother because I'd only just obviously started. This is like 99. And, uh, and I'd had such a good gig. And my mother went, well, they're not laughing very much. And I was like, they are laughing. It's just a video. <laughs> but um, but the, the whole point of that was that was your sort of, that was that was technology then, cutting edge. Here's my store video. There was no way of sharing it particularly because the computer industry wasn't up to it yet. The software wasn't there. But you, um, when you had that sort of thing, the, the idea of filming stuff was an absolute anathema because if you ever had something filmed, you were essentially giving it away. So totally. people didn't want to present, people did not want their material filmed. And if you did go, I am going to do a TV show and it's going to be on there, you knew you were sort of saying goodbye to that material, but mm-hmm. it was the best it could possibly be. And you kind of sent it off, broke a bottle of champagne over its bows and went, go, my beauty. Um, and I think there is still a certain level, which may be a problem, as you say, of my generation going, I don't want to put stuff out there that I don't think is good. Whereas a lot of people these days get just put something out at the same time every day. That doesn't matter what it is. Just put it out. That's what will get you the algorithm. And the purist in me goes, no, I'm not going to put out me going, that's a shit shirt. Come and see Alistair at AlistairBarry.com every day just so I can put something out every day. And that's to my detriment. Yes, yes. And I think that I share that kind of resentment and I share that sort of... I certainly have shared that feeling of, oh, come on, I've got really good at making guitars... And but you in order what in order to sell my guitars I've also got to get good at painting pictures. I'm but I'm good at making guitars. And I think that we we see more and more people around us going. Well, maybe if I take the sort of the the, the what I love about making guitars, maybe there is a transferable thing that will enable me to find a new way of painting pictures that surprises and amazes. Do you know what I mean? Because it isn't about going like. You know, you've got a shit shirt. I'm going to do some terrible crowd work or or whatever it is. There are plenty of people, younger, exciting people that I am, (laughs) for for whom I am very happy whilst also being (laughs) envious, who I can see, oh, that's clever. They've found a format that lasts nine seconds. It's funny. It's interesting. They're doing the same joke over and over again, maybe. But I've seen their act and their act's banging and all they're trying to do is sell their act. They're just trying to find a fun and, and engaging way for them for them of doing it. And surely, Alistair, yours and my ADHD brains, isn't this supposed to be our superpower? Aren't we supposed well, this, to be able yes. to be flexible and come up with ideas? Yeah. Just every time I sort of lose my thread, just cut it there and go on to the next one. But I <laughs> but I don't, it's not resentment. I don't think it's resentment. You said, and I, I don't resent that. And I watch, like, it's quite funny at the moment, my wife is very big on um, watching Instagram videos and there's, um, George Lewis does some great ones as a dad and stuff. And you kind of go, that's it's kind of sketch comedy especially it's it's revolutionized and it's fascinating and people who do it well do it really well i mean i did hear a funny story the other day about a woman who had uh six and a half million vine followers and was doing fantastically and then suddenly vine stopped and she went from being you know a, a, a media celebrity essentially to absolutely nothing um so it's it's you know it's a strange mistress the internet that it's it's devouring content and i think that's much larger than comedy i think it devours and demands content and i think there's nothing wrong with being quite fussy about the content you put out there having said that i've just had a meeting with a social media person because i'm looking at ways 
to uh, to spread my social media growth. It's the best way to sell my tour. I've promised loads of people I'm going to be doing loads of videos because I've got so much video backed up that needs editing and I'm not very quick at it. Um, and I'm going to be putting that out there. And I probably will be trying to put it out at the same time every day because I do realise you have to play the game. Yeah. Um, but... The, the voracious requirement for content, and this is something that's fascinating about Twitter at the moment, as it falls into absolute It's so horror. awful. Horror. It's so awful. Horror. Have you, have you seen the blue tick blocker? If you look at Twitter on your laptop, you can download an extension for Chrome that blocks anyone who has a blue tick. And well, suddenly Twitter's nice again. <laughs> well, I've, I've actually just joined Blue Sky, which is rapidly becoming very much like Twitter was. Okay. And um, I can see that taking off. Because it's basically Twitter. But Musk's... I mean, I, I take the view that Musk clearly is wrecking it for a reason because it is a bin fire. Um, and I think mm. his motives are extremely suspect. And everyone goes, God, does he not know what he's doing? I don't think he doesn't know what he's doing because it's especially yeah. for someone who uses it as a tool to build up audience and as as a writing mm. tool, as an interaction with other people and as a, as a news gathering service. It's gone from being really quite fun, although obviously quite poisonous at times, to being horrific and useless, more importantly. Um, but there's loads of things that happen online that, you know, if, if you look back in the day, I, I put a, a thing up on TikTok a little while ago. It was an old routine about cocaine and it did a hundred thousand views in a day. And if you, if you'd done that in like 2008, you'd have been going, well, I should be booking <coughs> Wembley then in sure, 2023. Yeah. You're going, Oh, I wonder what I said on the algorithm that made that one work. So, yeah. you know, I'm not in any way saying that you can't adapt and you don't need to move your... You know, the goalposts move, you have to move with them. But I will retain a certain ideological purity about what I do because I would I do it in a room. I do it in a room and I don't do it in into someone's living room for 30 seconds. And if that makes me a sad old reactionary bastard, I have to apologise. One of your stock-in-trade things one of your stocks in trade i don't know if that's the sentence yeah is sort of right righteous indignation oh god yes yes the guardian <laughs> where does that is that um is that pleasing to you because you think oh good they're getting what i'm putting out um is that is that deli- does that is that really of your of your personality i mean I, I would i would hazard a guess that it is i think it is to a certain extent yes but i mean i think i mean i wrote a, i wrote a show 2007 called obviously because i was just like obviously this is fucking idiotic i mean why on earth would you you know what do you mean you believe in god i mean it's the same fucking story three different abrahamic gods and yet they're all different and they're all fucking killing each other obviously even if there is a god it's the same fucking you know and that kind of level of um and it's, I mean, get it right. And I've got, as you say, it's one of my sort of my wheelhouse is, is when I write a good rant, uh, or to be honest, I don't even write a good rant. When a good rant comes out of me, uh, I'm usually kind of, ah, oh, that's good. Cause that'll go there in the show. And, and there is an element I have, it, it's a cheap trick having talked about idealism, uh, that you do know that you go, and then finish on the punchline round of applause. And you just go, uh, how much of that round of applause was for the brilliance of the comedy? How much was it engineered by the feat of memory and the general rhythm? But uh, yeah. again, you use the tricks available to you. But I do, I mean, I do get very, ex- I mean, I'm hugely exercised by this government to the to the point of being boring about it, which you have to be very careful about on stage, especially as a pop- political comic. You know, some people you just walk on stage and go, 
Rishi Sunak, and they go, oh, God, I came to comedy to not listen to shit about politics. Mm -hmm. But I'm a big believer that if you can't make it funny, you shouldn't be doing it. And I've had so many people over the years go, I don't normally like stuff about politics, but I like that. Um, And I am furious, incandescent with fury about this government. So that righteous indignation of, of, and also of how it's so obviously corrupt, the fact that Rishi Sunak can stand up. I mean, what kind of cunt goes to Manchester specifically to announce to the people of Manchester that there is no longer a train line that's going to happen to and from Manchester? But more importantly, he then announced a load of uh, things they were going to do with the money, which two days later it becomes clear... They're not going to do. It was all lies. They're illustrations. And you just go, can I... Right, this is mad. And and I do get furious. And the trick of being a comic is not to let the fury overweigh the fact that it's got to have the rhythm and it's got to have the punchlines. So, yes, I, righteous indignation is very much part of my uh, my thing. And what's your relationship to anger in your offstage life? Well, there's a question. As the father of young children, um, you might know something about this. I have never got angrier than I get with my children. And I, to the extent that I've had to go and seek some help. Um, I've always, my entire life, not really thought I was angry. I've always thought, and, and, and sort of old friends. I went for a meal with an old friend the other day. He's like, you, you know, because you've never been an angry person, have you? And I went, mate, I'm... And it turns out that... You know, it's that, uh, that wonderful um, Robbie Burns line, I would, our God's gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us. That's the worst Scottish accent you will ever hear online. <laughs> I'm leaving it in. I'm leaving it in. <laughs> I, I would. I would if I were you. That's uh, my half Scots uh, ancestors right now uh, crying. But no, I, I would, some God, the gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us. And I know that I can come across as smug, arrogant, aloof. And I know that a lot of people, when they get to know me better, realise that that's not the case but the difference between how we present ourselves and how we really are is all, always enormous. And we don't know. It's almost like, you know, that first time you ever heard your voice on a tape and you go, God, that's not me. There's an element of that about all of our personalities. And I never thought I was that angry. I mean, I get angry and exercised about, um, certainly about, about wanting the world to be a better place. And so many of the re- ways in which you could easily make it a better place are not being employed. And it just seems fucking idiotic to me. But on a personal level, um, yeah, I have been, uh, and, I, and the discovery that I had ADHD, which obviously in order to work as a comedian these days is an absolute requisite, um, was very interesting um, because... Just, just before we before we get onto that, I just want to go back. I don't quite get the 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 resolution of that thing. You were chatting to a friend. I was chatting to a friend, you, who and known... he said you didn't think of me as an angry person. And what was your what was your what was the 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 kind of the purpose of the Robbie the uh, We Rabbi Burns quote? Was it that you you realised people didn't realise you were as angry? No, I as don't. You were, I, don't I don't think I was that angry but my wife has said to me no you can get really properly furious and we've yeah, we have some like oh so couple. you so pre-children you i don't have a well, relationship I don't, with anger that you didn't really know about i think that i, I think that's probably true i also think um i've always been i don't know and i'm certainly not saying this is part of my belief system but librans uh, are meant to be very diplomatic as a libra and i have always been very diplomatic and i do see both sides um very you know and i and i i'm I'm very 
pretty good at settling disputes. But I had a very fiery first marriage. Um, my wife and I have, I mean, Emily said to me the other day, you know, we've had some proper sort of wing. And you kind of go, oh, have we? I didn't realise they were quite... It's just that thing of you don't realise... <laughs> you're, calib- you're calibrated differently due to exactly, a prior relationship. Exactly yes, that. Um, and um, so that's, that's hence the Burns quote. Um, but I have never thought of myself as that angry and I've always been quite diplomatic, but I've had to come to the realisation that um, I'm probably wrong. Is that because when you, certainly my experience with, I, I think of myself, I was never an angry person. Kids came along, holy shit, I can't cope with this. I'm getting really angry with them. <laughs> um, I don't think I was an angry person before that particularly, but I think one of the things that being with, like perhaps in situations before encountering your own children, you were able to extract yourself from a situation and deal with your anger. Yeah. Whereas, as we know, kids are constant and relentless and you can't leave them. You can't leave the house while they're kicking off because you're responsible for their safety. Because it's illegal. Yes, exactly. So what do you do? You have any kind of pet theories on if you were angry pre-kids where that anger originated? Is it just part of your brain chemistry? Is it... Ooh. Is global injustice, or is it something? I, genu- it I like- genuinely think there is something. And again, this is, sounds terribly pretentious, but this is, as we have established, something we want to go into. Um, I genuinely have always felt I, I, I've got a big thing about injustice, and funnily enough, again, old school friends um, I was talking to, um, are, are, we, we've all seemed to have a similar kind of thing about j- really disliking. And, and which is ironic, considering we all went to the same boarding school, so we went to the same private education that uh, promulgates okay. the idea of uh, of um, injustice. Actually, enshrines it in kind of the education system. But I do think all of us share a similar kind of view, and injustice and inequality are things that I kind of go. I'm fully aware. I'm hugely privileged. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have got where I got to without the background I have. But at the same time, that doesn't mean I can't see it's not fair that everyone should start from a level playing field and they don't. And that is the greatest fear of those who are given a privilege, that they mistake uh, privilege for talent. Now, I don't know which where I sit on that particular scale. I think I've got some talents. Um, if I had been born to a single mother in a housing estate in East London, um, would I be where I am now in the same? No, of course I wouldn't. I was born to a surgeon and his wife on the Isle of Wight and got sent to boarding school. That's very different upbringing. Um, so I, you know, that, and there's nothing you can do about that. But you can either go down the Lawrence Fox route of going, why should I apologise for my upbringing? No one's asking you to apologise. You're just asking you to acknowledge it. And I do think injustice does fire anger. Um, but at the same time, you're human. Is it, is it an injustice that you were sent to boarding school? Well, now you're doing therapy. And um, uh, as every therapist I've ever been to has, uh, yeah, it's not an injustice, but my parents sent me away at the age of 10 to somewhere 200 miles away. And because they thought they were doing the right thing and because my father had been there and my uncle had been there and my grandfather had been there and my brother would go there after me. Um, they thought they were doing the right thing. To me, the idea of sending your child away at the age of 10 is insanity, no matter how much my children drive me up the wall. Um, and I think that's a huge generational shift that we've sort of seen in my, like as a 51-year-old man, going to private school in the 80s was very much 
this is absolutely the best way to do give my child the best start in life. Now, most people can't afford it because it's become so ludicrously expensive. It's kind of an oligarch's luxury. Um, and I, people go, did it, did, it, did it affect you? Did it change you? Of course it fucking did. You don't send a 10-year-old away from his parents going, well, without it affecting them. But it also informed who I am today. So do I regret it? I don't regret it. Um, but it's part of my makeup. You mentioned you and the, the a couple of guys that you went to school with mm. who all have similar feelings about injustice. Yeah. Were you were you kind of did you rebel against the school either sort of actively or just passively like quietly in your head? Did you like have a apart from the kind of the the extraction from your family element of it? Did it seem like a fair place or did it seem like tyranny? Uh, well, I think it's quite interesting. It seemed like tyranny at first, but by the time we got to be the sort of at the top of it, we had an absolutely fabulous time because I had a brilliant bunch of friends who are still my best friends to this day. And, and they did let us kind of not do what we wanted. And, uh, but towards, I mean, we were all smoking and drinking and behaving badly, but I think we sort of learnt to do all those things. Um, and some of us didn't learn it very well and some of us were hugely irresponsible but um, it was quite interesting my brother who came a few years after me he failed his GCSEs and went back to my folks who suddenly had a 16 year old on their hands and they had no idea how to deal with a teenager because I'd gone off and done my drinking drugging sex all those things out of sight out of mind so for them to suddenly they were phoning me up going we've got this this thing in our house and we don't know how to cope with him he wants to go to the pub he's only 16 i'm going of course he wants to go to the the pub since i was 15 what the fuck are you talking about so um no i think i don't know that we we weren't terribly rebellious i mean we're all in many ways we're very much sort of you know guardian reading champagne socialists but then um you know as a nyron bevan said um when he was accused of being a champagne socialist, it was a case of well, the, the best for everyone, surely. So um, I think there is a... Yeah, I don't see us as, as particularly rebellious, but at the same time, we didn't exactly abide by the rules either. Odd question. Why aren't you right-wing? For exactly the reasons I've just espoused, that um, I believe in um, equality and I'm aware of my privilege, which I think... It's that entire thing of mistaking uh, privilege for talent. Uh, and that is what I believe the, the real difference I'm, is. I appreciate, I appreciate that you aren't right-wing, and I appreciate that those are the things you believe. But I suppose what I'm asking is, one might look at it from the outside of being a, a 51-year-old white guy who went to boarding school and think that probably some of the some of that system is sort of designed to make you right wing. Oh, entirely. What was it about? What 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 were the effect? What were the sort of the the things you learnt, or the media you consumed, or the um, the lessons you learnt that contributed to the ideological journey you've just described? Um, that's a very good question. It's quite funny actually. The friend I was out with the other night, who is the guy I first met in. September 1982 we shared a bedroom basically for eight years very very old friend of mine um but I do remember we went out for a meal for our 50th birthday and he actually disclosed that he had voted conservative at one point and I was absolutely fucking appalled um whereas I know pretty much all the rest of my mates hadn't but then he is the one who went into property and he is the one whose father was chairman of the local conservative association and I I don't know I, I think it's kind of I think I kind of woke up at university a bit 
I was, I mean, I remember I did, I, back to what I do for a living, I won the debating competition at school two years running. I was, you know, that was like, oh, I'm quite good at this speaking in public business. I always remember to my eternal shame, even though the point of debating is to debate things that you don't necessarily believe in, that I won the debating competition in the sixth form, um, opposing the motion, Thatcherism is a luxury this country can no longer afford. And uh, in fact, funnily enough, <laughs> funnily enough, I still have, I've just realised this is hilarious, in my bookshelf right next to my head, I have the Oxford uh, Dictionary of Quotations that I won for that. Won as first prize in the 1989 debating competition with a friend I was talking about, opposing the motion that this house believes that Thatcherism is a luxury this country can no longer afford. <laughs> Presented by Mr. I. Wright of The Guardian, interesting enough. Don't know what he was doing there. But um, yeah, so I kind of... I didn't really think. I think I was kind of... Um, and then I went to university just after the poll tax riots, got together with a fantastic girl who's now a brilliant theatre designer, director, who was uh, from Bolton um, and was, you know, of the left and kind of... I think she had a lot to do with opening my eyes to how I felt about things. I think the thing that m informs it most is that I, do, I, I specifically remember... There's a few things, I, uh, belief systems I spe specifically remember. I remember very vividly my late teens at school or mid-teens even suddenly looking around the chapel and going this is madness of course god doesn't exist we invented him to make ourselves feel better um and the other one i remember is saying is, is promising myself i would make a living out of my own brain um and i don't i mean it's very frustrating to like my parents my father was a doctor he wanted me to be a doctor and you know if you get on this railroad at the age of 18 then you will be secure through your life the idea of being an actor was, um, was, was, I mean, actually, funnily enough, he wanted to be an actor and was absolutely, it was not going to happen because he needed security. I had, obviously, the luxury that I did have the security. And funnily enough, last year, for the first time ever, my father, I went to university to do English literature just because I could and I was good at it. Um, and my father actually said to me last year for the first time ever, oh, I should let you go straight to drama school. You weren't interested in, in university at all, which only took him 30 odd years to say. But I had the luxury of being able to. Um, I had the luxury of being able to to follow a life that was not um, railroaded, and you know, uh, it, it's, it's the whole problem that you hear all the time now that those going into the arts are those who have a safety net. And I luckily haven't had to use a safety net particularly, but I've always been aware it's there, which makes quite a difference. I've always felt, and that is the big thing I feel about. Back to your question, why are you not right wing? I'm aware I've got a safety net. I think a lot of people who are right wing are like, oh, no, safety net's nothing to do with. No, I didn't need a safety net. I was, I did, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. No, you fucking didn't, Donald Trump. You got given five hundred million by your dad. You know what I mean? Mm. That's really interesting, and I really enjoy the phrasing of that. I decided, I sort of promised myself I would make a living out of my own mind. Why? Why did you promise yourself that? What is it about? Like, what is the... Can you just talk to me a bit more about what that means? Do you mean as opposed to by learning to do something with your um, hands? Or, or is there more to it than that? That seems like a really there's, there's quite kind possibly of an enormous amount phrasing. of laziness involved, despite what it might sound like, but just kind of going, you know, it's fine something I'm quite good at and then I don't have to work too hard at it. But I think that's, that's possibly being unfair on myself. I think... Um, it's difficult. I... I, t I tell you what it probably is, and again, back to the ADHD brain, I don't want anyone else to be my boss. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. And I think that's something that we we all have in common yeah. in comedy, 
that we don't like being told what to do and that even there's there's a number of reasons we do comedy um my wife has a very interesting theory about it which i'll share with you in a minute but um the not wanting to be told what to do there is it's an it's a it's a minor act of rebellion almost every time you get up on stage and there is something very pure as well about i mean this is why people who aren't stand-ups think it's the most terrifying thing they've ever heard of whereas people who are stand-ups are like mm, it's perfectly natural the idea of standing up in front of a crowd with nothing but a mm. microphone and having to hold that not just hold that room but genuinely entertain them for an hour is i mean how do you start what what which is obviously what you're confronted with when you first stand up on stage but to us it's not it's not something that holds fear um and i think a combination of uh self-determination not wanting to be told what to do and and obviously the the very simple uh ridiculous makeup of those performers we know which is you know um you know the, the desperate need for approval um combined with a kind of persona that says i don't need approval which is is essentially what most actors and comedians are again it comes back to how people view you uh, the burns quote uh we all know that not all comedians, not all actors are hugely confident people, but they appear to be because of what they do for a living. I had a bit in a show a while ago about having low self-esteem and it just never worked because people are kind of going, you're standing up in a room in front of 50 people with a microphone telling them about it. You don't, and you have to face the fact that on a certain level, you don't have low self-esteem because of you do what you do. Um, so, yeah, I think... I wanted self-determination. I wanted to be able to kind of want I wanted something that was mine, I think, as well. According to those kind of parameters, self-determination, making a living from your mind, uh, out of your mind, and, uh, you know, doing what you want to do, not having a boss, all those kind of things. It feels like that's an absolute green wave. You've done it. You've smashed it. All of those things. Yeah. Tick, 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 tick. Are you there for... Absolutely not. That'd be ridiculous, Stuart. How... <laughs> no, exactly. Well, of course not. Of course not. But isn't that interesting? You've done what you set out to do. Absolutely. And it's... A, so... It's... Uh, well, because I, 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 I had to do a radio thing the other day with Hugo Rifkind, and it was life advice. And But the bit of life advice you followed, and I was just going, fuck, I can't think of anything. And then I thought, actually, it wasn't... She didn't say it to me personally, but Ronnie Ancona just said anyone who makes a living in this business is a success. And I do hold on to that. You know, I've got a nice house and a lovely family. Um, and there are, I mean, I was talking about this in the dressing room the other day, um, because it's so funny. If you, if you sit around with open spots and they're going, God, I can't believe I can't get 10 minutes at whatever little club with that. And then you sort of go up to a bit further up and you're going, God, I can't get into such and such a club. And then they, God, they won't let me headline. And then, and basically at every single level of, and you can be sitting there. Um, not that I generally have that often, but very, you know, famous friends of mine sitting in a dressing room with, you know, you can be with three of the biggest names in British comedy. I was doing, as Andy Robinson, I was talking to bless him because Andy supported a lot of people and done a lot of warm up with very famous people <laughs> going, he goes, it's ridiculous. I've sat there with and named like three of the most famous stand-ups of the last 20 years. And it's exactly the same conversation. It's just, it's, you know, mm. why aren't I playing this massive thing as opposed to why am I not getting my five minutes at, pear-shaped or whatever the present incarnation of the open mic circuit is 
Is it possible, do you think, to be a fulfilled comedian? Oh, or will oh, that always be there? Well, depicted there, and I, I totally appreciate one, that. that. Is it? I don't. <laughs> I've, I've thought that many times myself. Is it um, possible? Oh, well, yeah, that's. I don't know. I mean, it's almost like you're kind of second guessing the idea of going. If I became a fulfilled comedian, would that be like I've completed comedy? I'm no longer funny. Um, I think. I mean, this is the. I have a bit in the new show about um, comedy being the. Basically, I moan about the state of the nation and my children for about fifty minutes, fifty-five minutes, and then at the end, I go, I can't, and I finish with a very kind of strong bit about mental health and the, the next generation, um, and then I go, I can't leave you on a negative. Um, one thing we do have in this country, you've got to remember, is we do have the best comedy in the world, and we do. I mean, I've done this all over the fifty countries. We have the best comedy clubs on the planet the most healthy or is it unhealthy comedy circuit and the reason for that and the joke is i go you know why that is it's because everything's shit and that is what comedy is comedy is moaning and it really is and so there is of course if you've got a fulfilled and, and then i do a thing about and it's a terribly bad form to do a routine on your podcast so i won't do it but it was it's about going to the gp and getting an appointment and then taking the train down there because it's on time and that's sure. and it works yeah, really yeah. beautifully blah 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 blah. um and so i don't know if i'm sure it's possible to be a fulfilled comedian but i don't know if it's terribly useful what would fulfill me more i think i mean i was as i say i listened to your podcast with ian and ian doing his um you know wonderful new career as a writer and i am jealous of comedians who i mean i've written sitcoms that have been optioned um there is a bit of me that feels i could do some other things that i would find useful i wrote some i i, I worked on a lawyer's series of lectures recently i you know when i write stuff i get a i, I write a food blog mainly to keep me writing um and when i get one of those done i feel a sort okay. of sense of satisfaction and i think we do possibly channel things a bit too much into another night at the comedy store then i can get to headliners and after that i'm doing the uh, you know i'm doing the bear cat and and i think we get a little railroaded into um the circuit because it's called a circuit because it goes around and i think the thing that in terms of frustration when you what what does i think annoys a lot of us not noise possibly the wrong word but you see people get given opportunities that you think that would be fun and it doesn't necessarily mean taskmaster or something like that, but it's hilarious the amount of times comedians you see appearing on TV. And the last thing anyone wants them to do is comedy. You know, can you cook on this show? Can you do the SAS? Mm -hmm. Can you do that? And stuff like that. Some of those opportunities I'd love to have a go at. But I'm quite fulfilled mm -hmm. as an unfulfilled comedian. You said earlier on, that you sometimes come across as smug, arrogant, or aloof. These are your words I'm repeating back to you. Yes. Do you know... I, yes, I remember saying it. <laughs> Do you... Like, why? That's an unusual thing to say, I think. I haven't really heard... You know, like, oh, people say, or, you know, people say, or I'm aware I come across as smug. It's funny the way you said it just then, because as almost as I'm aware I come across as smug. I mean, just your very use of the word I'm aware I come across as, which is what I said. So I'm fully aware. I, 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 have, <laughs> I, I have quite a posh voice. Uh, I am uh, a relatively tall white man. I am 
pretty well educated, very well educated. I have quite a large vocabulary. My status on stage, I play high status. So, um, and, and you, again, I mean, it's funny how we keep coming back to this. I, I was working with um, Esther Minito the other day. Um, and she said the first time I ever worked with, I had no recollection of this. This is one of the problems we have when you've been doing it this long. You find out, and I, I'm really big on tr- desperately trying to make sure I'm nice to people because they, well, you'll meet them again and they'll be, you know, Esther's brilliant. Um, and, but she said, oh, we were doing a gig apparently in Bath, Bath Festival. And it was one of those, it was like a microphone set up in a corner with a curtain and noise bleed. And just, you walk in and go, oh, for fuck's sake, this is just not right for comedy. And apparently I was at the back of the room going, this is fucking ridiculous. And Esther said I, I was the most terrifying man she'd met in her life. And I was like, God, really? And I, <laughs> and again, you don't realise the effect you're having because she was the open spot going, oh, crap, I'm on the Bath Festival. I'm going to do this five minutes here. And I'm on with Simon Evans and Alistair Barry. Wow. And I was, and then Alistair Barry is walking around backstage going, for fuck's sake. Blah, blah, blah. And you don't realise that, again, how people perceive you. I have, it, it'd be pretty hard not to be aware over the years of being viewed publicly to not have an inkling of how you are viewed and I think a comedian with no self-awareness is normally it's it's the one who comes off stage having absolutely stunk out the room going I think you'll find that went pretty well it's that you, you immediately go they're going nowhere um so I am aware you know I, I have I am high status on stage I have a certain arrogance um that I think I'm right about things. I don't necessarily take being told I'm wrong terribly well. And also I'm prepared to kind of back myself up if I am challenged and that can come across as smug. And also, you know, why doesn't everyone else see it like this? It's a pretty smug point of view. And as we've established, that's one of the sort of (laughs) cornerstones of my comedy. When you've talked just in the last hour or so, when you've talked about... Some people come on this podcast and go, oh, well, I did this, um, oh, God, it was sort of quite a big gig and, you know, I was really pleased to be there. You know, they sort of, they will dress their achievements with a sort of humility um, that you don't seem encumbered by sometimes. <laughs> oh, that is, oh, that is uh, twisting the knife <laughs> in the most beautiful way. Um, I think that's, but again, no, that's probably fair. But I also think, I mean, I was doing a, where was I, a big theatre, Tom Tuck said to me, Tom Tuck said something that Al, Al is very good in a big theatre because there is a bit of me that gets and you know as well as I do you've done big theatres there is something about being in a big theatre that is specifically designed for the entire audience to be looking at you and it's much bigger than somewhere you play like the, the Lyceum I've played the Lyceum 1600 seats and you're just going oh this is fucking brilliant and literally you know a hand <laughs> gesture that would be ignored in a club gets a, a, the sort of laugh you have to pause for Everything takes longer. I always remember um, Sarah Kendall saying to me after she got nominated for the Perrier, um, they went. They used to do the season in London, and she said to me afterwards, she said, we have the hardest job in the world because when you go and do it in a theatre, it's just joyful. You don't have to convince anyone on a Saturday night at their works, do. Um, yeah. And so I do think there is an element of when I get the opportunities, I normally um, have the capability to take them and there is certainly a a slight level of of frustration that perhaps I haven't been given opportunities I could but then show me a comedian who doesn't have that um I I still then there are certain things I'm 
delighted and privileged to have got the chance to do. But if I look back at things I've done that have been amazing, like doing the Cape Town Festival for a month, um, uh, going to uh, going to Afghanistan, um, you know, I kind of did them. I sort of feel I did them because I'd earned them. So there's, is it arrogance or is it a sort of self-confidence or is it just a sort of contentment with your ability? I don't know. But I'm fully aware, as you've just put it, that if you do come across as unencumbered <laughs> by that, that can appear arrogant. <laughs> well, I wondered if I wondered if that quality that you've described is to do with, given that you were sort of not allowed to go to drama school and given that you were sort of sent to boarding school, that kind of slightly tumultuous element of your of your upbringing, of your formative years... I wonder if partly it's because, like, do, do you think there is an element of which your success proves that you, like, proves to your parents or proves to your teachers <laughs> or proves to the kids you went to school with who weren't your friends? Because I'm not, you know what I mean? I, I went to a private school and I hated it. I had a horrible, horrible time. And a lot of that, I've said this many times on the podcast before, a lot of what, a lot of the decisions I've made over the course of my life, my life as a performer, have been an attempt to prove something to some uh, boys who are kind of 11 or 12 who no longer exist because they've grown <laughs> up and don't remember me and don't care. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm sort of trying to prove myself to myself to them. I wonder, is that is that an element of your sort of psychological I'm, I'm not in any way trying to um, dispute the account you've just given of your reasonings, but... Uh, and, you know, I mean, I had a, a horrible time in my second year at school. There were some really horrific bullies in the year above. And I, you know, look back on it now and go, and that did have a huge effect. You know, when you're whipped with a Walkman strap until you bleed or whatever, that's kind of horrible. Um, but actually, my experience at school at the end was positive. But what I think has informed it, and Hal Cruttenden, who's one of my best mates, uh, always, always says to me, you know, you've got this sort of resilience because you went to boarding school. And I think there is a definite element that, it took me a long time to convince my parents that as far as I'm concerned, I left home at the age of 10. They were like, no, you don't, don't be ridiculous. We sent you to school and you didn't leave home until you went to university when you were 18. No, no, I left home at the age of 10 in my head. Um, and as a result, two of the people, two of the comics who know me best in the world, Hal Crutton and, and Mick Ferry, have both separately uh, said to me independently, uh, you've got a sort of innate self-confidence or, or resilience. And... I'm sure that that must be something to do with basically being kind of pushed out there on your own at 10. Um, whether I'm showing people is a different matter, and I'm not sure that I would say I am. I am... I mean, there is a, an element of when I started doing... I mean, I, had one, I remember one year when I did an advert, like 20 years ago, and I did a very, very well-paid advert, and I made the mistake of telling my mother how much I'd earned that year. And she went, oh, my God, that's almost as much as your father earns. And... <laughs> It was kind of like, how dare you? For, for And it, to be fair, I was literally getting paid that for standing in a photography studio for five days, um, not actually learning how to be a consultant, obstetrician, a gynecologist. Um, but this is, you know, you know, in our world, there is a ridiculous thing that you can go and do the best work you've ever done as a favour to a mate who's doing a benefit and you do 20 minutes. Or you can go and do 10 minutes at a corporate with a number of noughts on the end. It is a silly job. We know it is a silly job. Um, and so you have to work out in your own head how you market. And by that same token, you have to work out how you value yourself. 
It's been great talking to you. And you too, mate. Um, tell us where you are in the tour. Uh, oh, it's, it's only just started. I've just done the first date. Uh, they really start at the end of, uh, end of October. I'm going to Tallinn on the 19th then. Newcastle 28th, Southend 29th. If you go on my website, there's about 22 dates, I think. Uh, still waiting to confirm a couple more, but go to alistairbarry.com. And if you follow me on the socials, um, there will apparently be some content with uh, really exciting opening three seconds and then uh, just dipping in under the 30-second mark coming quite soon. When I have uh, changed my entire ability to do comedy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Al. It's a pleasure, mate. Thank you so much. Cheers. So that was Alistair. Half an hour more from him at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders or on your feed if you're already attached to it. Do people attach themselves to the Insiders Club? I suppose in many ways they do. Entangle, some of them. Uh, So, again, I could just hear how nasal I am. This is just awful. Apologies to you. Apologies to uh, Alistair for this being for me being in this state during his episode i think when we recorded it it was over a week ago and i was absolutely fine but fingers crossed um so thank you to alistair for coming onto the show thanks to you for listening uh the music was by rob smout and the title was by asher trelevin and uh nathan wood was your editor so uh thanks i've already said thanks thanks again i will post amble at you i've written down i've got two things here i in in advance i thought i'll think of some things to post amble and then it won't be a load of cack Speak to you soon. Right, you still there? Yes. There we go. I've promised big. This won't be a load of cack. Imagine that. High <laughs> excitement indeed. I go, to be honest, I, I've got a couple of things to mention, but I will. I just can't bear the sound of my own voice. I'm, I'm on Sudafed. I'm blowing my nose ten times a minute. Um, but uh, I sort of... Could it be? Could it be? That recording this in a damp cellar uh, in, on a clay hill in Bristol is not great for me. <laughs> Could it be that? Who knows? Um, I haven't. No, I tell you what. I'll stick to. I'll stick to the things. These are the things. I had a really fun time for Leslie Gold uh, of this parish. <laughs> Can I say that? That's so curved, isn't it? Um, but you know, she's uh, uh, Leslie Gold is a, a comic, a listener, and was a, a, a sort of infinite sofa instigator who has gone on to run a lovely little gig called So Fam So Funny. So Sofa So Funny. That's it. I'm sorry, Leslie. Um, but it's a it's a lovely. What did I describe it as? I said something about it. She quoted it. She's very welcome to. It's um, something like aggressively inclusive, terrifyingly inclusive, or something like that. It's a really fun little gig. But um, she. Also, it turns out, runs this lovely kind of charity gala show or was booking a charity gala show for the Passage Homelessness Charity on um, uh, at the Comedy Store with uh, Dara O'Brien. And instantly, instantly, right, tangent number one. You will know if you listen to this show that there are certain patterns of behaviour I exhibit when post-ambling and indeed when interviewing people. And because I have recently started doing some ADHD coaching, e.g. I'm the one being coached. I mentioned that to a friend, tangent number two, I mentioned that to a friend recently and he was like, Jesus, that was quick. And I went, no, 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 I haven't started coaching anyone. Don't I barely know the first thing about it. But I am having some ADHD coaching and I'm finding it very useful. And I like genuinely like it's quite good. And um I don't know why I said that. I think because the, the the sort of the induction process into it was a bit rocky and I was thinking, am I going to bother with this? And then I had a proper session. I went, bloody hell, I'm glad I stuck with it. Um, so, um, yes, I'm trying to 
at the very least recognise certain patterns of my own behaviour. And one of them is that I know that my memory is so bad and my desire to be liked is so great, that, and it, it's not great, but you know, so much, that um, as soon as I ever have to mention who was on a bill, which no one's asked me to, I just, I'm going to tell you about this gig. Oh, it had Dara, Catherine Bohart was there. And suddenly you can probably hear the sort of the internal terror as I suddenly go, oh Christ, who am I going to forget? I can't, don't have easy access to a list of everyone that was on. And I'd be so mortified if I thought someone had forgotten them. Lorna Treen was there. She was great. And she saw me spit my drink. That, I think that's the only time I've ever done a genuine spit take and I spat water all over the back of a lady sat in front of me. I was, um, you know, in the comedy store, the, the acts sort of occasionally hang out in front of the sound booth. I was there and who was on? Was it Catherine? I think there was such a funny turn of phrase and I just went and it, was, it wasn't even a spray, like an atomization effect. It was like a glob of water. Oh God. Um, Lorna was great. Dinesh Nathan, I've known for a long time. I hadn't seen for years. Uh, he was fantastic. Absolutely spanked it. So listen, to, to, getting back to tangent one, can we just accept, can I, for the sake of my mental health, just accept, can I disclaim all future sentences that come out of my mouth with, I won't necessarily say the name of everyone there, but they were all great. Esther Benito, she was great too. Um, and uh, you could, oh God, but now I've done almost everyone. Esther, Catherine, Dara... Dinesh, like everyone killed it. Oh, Suze, Suze Kempton was there. She was brilliant. It was Suze. It was Suze I was watching and it was a hair flick. It wasn't even a joke. She did a sort of performative hair flick as part of sort of fleshing out an impression. And um, it literally made me spit my drink. That's, I'm so glad I remembered her. And listen, if you're the sort of seventh person that was on that bill and I've not said you, no, oh, Daniel Fox, he was great. It was the first time I've seen him live. Um, if you're the eighth person that was on that bill and I've forgotten you, I'm so sorry, but I cannot live like this. I can't. Every time I mention a gig, I simultaneously, you can hear me going, oh, oh, I'd better mention everyone. That would be polite. And then as soon as I see someone, I'm like, dot, I've got to mention everyone now. And I can never fucking remember. So ADHD coaching, not one of the two things on the list, but we could talk about that. I'll, that'll be ongoing, I think, for the next six months. So um, I will fill you in more on that at the time. But it's all it's all to do with reducing the cognitive load I have learned so far in the sense that I sort of half understand that. Um, but uh, the point was, this is one thing on the list. Great gig. Lo lovely show. Lovely. Not kicked at the store for ages and ages. And so nice that you walk on and go, like, what am I? Where am I at? I'm at not regularly bashing the circuit in the way that I've done for years and years and years, working on other stuff, very excited and fulfilled. But it does mean you get backstage at a gig and you're like, was it a dream? Was it? It's so ephemeral. Was it? Was it a dream? Did I dream 18 years of being a stand-up comic? Because I'm blown if I know what I say or how I do it. This is extraordinary. What the fuck am I putting myself through? And then, pleasingly, in that circumstance at least, walked on just from the off had an explosively fun gig, really, really fun. And then I was wearing that sort of flowery T-shirt that's on one of the um, flowery jumper that is on one of the uh, spoilers uh, promo shots. And um, they started trying to make me bloody auction it because it was a charity thing. And it's my favourite, it's my second favourite jumper, but I really like it. And it represents me trying to dress as interestingly and cool as my family do because... Both of the Herberts and my wife, are, they're both just such snappy, not snappy dresses, do you know what I mean? But like colourful, exciting, exotic. And I, I'm just there in the man uniform looking like a twat. So I'm trying to do my best. I was wearing this big pink flowery jumper 
And, um, and they tried to make me auction it. And I, very deftly, having been in situations before where people, kind of the audience, the crowd has a joke idea and decides to chant it and bully you, I said, all right, I'll auction it. I'll start the bidding at 500 quid. Ha! That shut them up. And obviously, I then <laughs> had the opportunity to climb down from that in order to make money from the charity. But I did not. I walked off stage. <laughs> I, said, I, I managed not to say anything too aggressive, I don't think, but in a, in a comically snooty way. I walked off stage and uh, uh, and no one often... Vibed. I said something along the lines of, well, that shows how much how much you think you care about charity. And I swanned off and I loved it. It was so fun. But pleasingly, I'm not just showing off about the fact that I, I don't like <laughs> auctioning my clothes for a completely worthwhile charity. The guy, uh, one of the guys who had sort of voted and had been sort of chippy in a friendly, heckly kind of way, contacted me the next day via Instagram messenger, offering me more than £100. I talked him up. Uh, we negotiated, and I have since auctioned the jumper, and I will do, or I will make Callum do on my behalf, uh, an Instagram reel with a bit of a clip from the show, and this is me committing to it now. This is me committing him to it now. Um, uh, with uh, some uh, video from the show and our uh, Instagram message conversation. And then maybe I can be the next chicken wire. Who knows? Who knows? Um, but uh, it was it was fun. It was good. Um, and here's the last thing, because that was there one for ages. Um... No, I'll save this. There we go. I'll save it for next time. That's good, isn't it? Who's out next time? I think it's Sakiza. Oh, brilliant, brilliant Sakiza. Um, that'll do for now. Join the Insiders Club, you bastard. And uh, I'll... Very unlike me. <laughs> there we go. So flittering and flickering is my identity that simply by telling a story in which I was briefly high status, I've just said, join the Insiders Club, you bastard, for the first time. God, wouldn't it be nice to have a consistent self? Bye for now. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.